Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, guys, uh, so we started our call-in show this last week, and I was really happy to get so many positive comments despite the fact that the phone was totally messed up. And I did figure out what that was all about. It is not going to be a problem again. And um, so this next week, I think we're going to have a, a great show. <laughs> I also learned, you know, in the first episode that you're going to make mistakes. And I made some. And uh, we'll get those fixed. And uh, and uh, anyway, I'm just very happy about the whole thing. And I'm actually really pumped about the fact that the show now exists. And we're doing it. And Melissa gets to be part of it. And, and I'll have other guest hosts on in the future uh, through Zoom or live here in the studio. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm really very excited about the whole thing, actually, because as I think I mentioned last week, it gives me the opportunity to be in direct connection and, and communication with you guys. And that's a whole new level than just getting your comments in a live chat chat box, which we will continue to do, of course, as well with this show when I do it live and even the um, Sensibly Speaking podcast, which we will probably do some live episodes of that as well. So anyway, just uh, fun and games, and, and I really look forward to talking to you guys uh, this coming up Wednesday. Okay, so podcast-wise, though, did a really good episode uh, about a week ago to had a nice conversation with John Atack about forgiveness and redemption for cult members and people who have been involved in high control groups and and what that means and how that how that feels and what that looks like and how I've experienced it, how John's experienced it, and how others probably can or will also. So I hope you'll check that podcast out. Bizarre technical glitch happened. I uploaded it and there was no sound, even though there was sound in the in the file. So that was a little weird. Hopefully we don't have too many more of those technical problems. I'm sorry for any any trouble that caused. Don't know what happened at all. It was not any change on my part. It was something with YouTube. But anyway, um, we have some really, really interesting questions um, this week. So let's go ahead and get right into them. Katie LaSalle. First of all, thank you so much for your videos. I find them very educational and your open-minded approach to various topics slash people is inspiring to watch. I recently came across Stephen Mango's YouTube channel and found some disturbing information. My past experience with Stephen Mango's content always ended with me having mixed feelings about him. He comes across as someone who was truly victimized by the Church of Scientology, but also who takes his past experience in building a YouTube celebrity status. Do you agree? In his last video, he called out Karen De La Carriere as a scam artist who uses independent Scientologists, providing them with services and stealing money. I've been a fan of hers, so this news comes as a shock to me. I don't know who to believe in. Your name immediately popped into my mind because I know you will give an honest analysis of the situation despite your friendship with Karen. I've heard that there is infighting among ex-Scientologists, and perhaps this might be one of them. What is your, your thoughts on Stephen Mango? Has he been infiltrated by the Church of Scientology? Is it true what he says about Karen? Oh, God. Okay, I'm only talking about this and taking this up because I have been asked by a number of you uh, about this, including uh, some of my Patreon supporters. And so I take questions that you guys ask me seriously, and I want to give you the information as I see it best I can. But I do not want to get involved in YouTube drama and community drama. And that's pretty much 
what all of this is. So I, you know, I'm, re I'm, I'm like, Ugh, you know, you always see me a little bit mm, about talking about this stuff because when you do, it attracts the trolls, it attracts the trouble. And um, predictably, that's what will happen as we'll, as we'll go over here. Um, so I'm not going to go into a long, detailed thing about all of this or do response videos or any of that. This is really about the only time I want to talk about this. Um, so here goes. Stephen Mango has a few different YouTube channels. He has this Mangotology channel where he talks about Scientology-related stuff. And then he has Mango Tea or something like that. And I was really confused by that until I had to look up what this whole celebrity tea thing is. And the tea is in T-E-A. Um, and apparently this is like this, the, when you see T in a channel's name, which is the other channel Stephen has, then, um, well, I've linked below to a couple of videos that one is a response video from another person in this T drama, you know, sort of TMZ celebrity YouTube world that I really didn't have a whole lot of awareness of until I had to look into this. I've spent, you know, a little bit of time today having to dive into all this stuff. Um, and I've also linked to an article below, uh, which gives an explanation of what this whole tea community is all about. And it's basically a drama community. It's all about celebrity drama and dishing on celebrities and, and tattling and um, this kind of thing, right? And it's gossip. It's basically modern-day gossip rags. And it, it, that's transferred to social media, Instagram, and YouTube. And so instead of, you know, people reading up on all the celebrity magazines, now they go to the celebrity channels. And this is, you know, ripe territory for some people who have that uh, idea that this is valuable work. And they make money at it. And like I said, it's sort of all TMZ-like. Well, Stephen lives in that world. And he does that, obviously, by his own choice. And you can go look at that channel and see what that's all about. It has absolutely no interest to me of any kind and never has. Um, but it's what some people, you know, choose to do with their time. Now, what's happening is over the last, I don't know, week or so, um, Mango decided that he was going to merge these two worlds of Mangotology and, and this celebrity tea dishing business and bring that into the ex-Scientology community. And that is not a good idea for a number of reasons. Um, first and foremost being that the ex-Scientology world is a world of trauma survivors. <sighs> These are people who have experienced very real and very emotionally, psychologically, and even physically damaging of trauma and abuse. This is not a joke. The people who come out of Scientology, especially who people who were at the level of the C organization, experience years of steady, um, purposeful, premeditated abuse. Um, I did. Karen did. Lots of people did. And we've come out and we've talked about this. On Leah's show, we've talked about this ad, in, you know, ad nauseum. So you know that that's real, that that's a real thing. Stephen Mango was fleeced from some money as a Scientologist. He was almost recruited into the Sea Org. They did the usual recruit cycles. You know, you, you know Stephen's story. And I'm not saying that or saying anything about him in an effort to invalidate or make less of the experience he did have. 
But at the same time, let's not blow that out of proportion and call it, you know, more than what it was. And anyone who gets in contact with or, or gets involved in Scientology is victimized by Scientology. Let's not, let's not, you know, beat around the bush or make any mistake about that. It is a destructive cult. That's what it does. It traumatizes people and uh, takes their money, takes their lives, takes their time, takes years away from them, takes their families, takes their friends. I mean, it's, it's bad. Uh, Scientology is one of thousands of groups that do this premeditatively, you know, purposefully, and with malice aforethought. Um, this is why we work so hard to expose these groups and, and teach you guys about them so that you can avoid them. <laughs> and if you have friends or family who get involved in them, that you can help them out of it. That's what this is all about. That's what the activism in the ex-Scientology world is about. It's not about drama. It's not about who did what to who in the ex-Scientology world. And there is no cult in the ex-Scientology community. That's not how these things work. But people get confused, and some people are not confused. Some people are just looking for attention. And there's a problem with being a victim. When you put yourself forward as a victim, and I'm a victim, Karen's a victim, Mango was a victim. I mean, this is not like some black label. It happens. You get abused. You get traumatized. That sucks. You then have to deal with that. When part of dealing with that becomes embracing it and using it for status or to get clicks or views repeatedly, over time, one begins to wonder what's the purpose and intention. And that is how I see Steve Mango's channel, because he really had very little happen to him as a Scientologist compared to, say, myself, Karen, Mark Headley, you know, any number of people I could, I could throw out here. Um, is that to say that he is worthless and his story doesn't mean anything? Of course not doesn't mean anything like that. However, there is a scale or a spectrum. And as you guys know, I'm keen on talking about things on scales or spectrums because it allows us a nuanced understanding. And nuance is, is really important here, as is context. Um, people in the X community are traumatized, or trauma survivors, I should say. So they're going to view the world through a difficult lens of trauma. And they're gonna to have to deal with that. And everybody has to deal with it their own way. Some of us have dealt with it. I've said from the very beginning, for example, for me, that this is how I'm dealing with it, is making a YouTube channel and talking to you guys about it and educating myself and, and talking to people who can help educate me so you know we can all move along this ride together. I have tried very hard to move beyond the victimhood of Scientology and make something of my life that is not about that. And I don't think that that is where Mango is approaching this. He seems to be very, very interested in milking this victim status that he, that he thinks he has for as much views, attention, clicks as he can get. And of course, that translates to money when you monetize your channel. Um, and I'm not calling him out for monetizing this channel. I monetize my channel. This is my job. If that's going to be his job, fine. 
But let's be clear that that job of dishing on people and creating drama in a community is not a job of truth. And it's not a job of, of education. And it's not a job of trying to move the ball down the road or take down Scientology. It's a job of being interesting. It's a job of being a victim as a business model. And I don't think that's a very constructive thing to do. It is a thing to do. It's a perfectly valid thing to do. Um, but it is not something I would, you know, I think is uh, noteworthy or attention worthy. Uh, I think it's kind of scummy. But that's just me. That's my opinion. And that's, and I get to have an opinion about anything. <laughs> and since you guys asked me about it, I have to tell you uh, honestly and directly my opinion on these things, right? I don't think drumming, drumming up drama in this community of trauma survivors is a very smart thing to do. It backfires on the person who does it every single time. I've been paying attention to this community for a, for a long time now. I mean, it's been six, seven years that I've been in it, and the backstory is all there. All the backstories of all the drama kings and queens and all the things that they did and the, the, the pleas for attention and the pleas for support and the pleas for, you know, oh my God, I'm such a victim and my life has fallen apart and everything about my life is directly attributable to this thing that, you know, I've talked about for hundreds of hours and it still is traumatizing me and, you know, like, okay, I got it. You know, you're free to do that, but... Is it really what the world needs to hear about you and about Scientology? No, it's not. Not even remotely. Now, as far as the specifics of the things that Karen is accused or Karen's being accused of, um, I've spoken with Karen about it. I've spoken with Jeff about it. Um, their statements on the matter are crystal clear that Mango is definitely telling bald-faced lies about the experience that he had with them. There are so many questions and contrary pieces of information on public record in social media and otherwise about all of this that um, it very much surrenders and breaks down to critical thinking very quickly, Mango's story does. It doesn't make any damn sense, in other words. And um, he never apparently contacted them privately before pushing these videos out to try to get that money back or try to deal with it or reconcile the situation. Um, you know, this all happened in 2013 in terms of him getting this auditing that he paid for from Karen. Karen has sworn to me over and over again for years that she is not engaging in auditing practice anymore. And I believe her. I don't, she, she was telling me that long before anybody was, you know, running some accusations against her or anything like that. She just, between her and me, that's what she told me, and I believed her, and I do believe her. So why make a mountain out of a molehill seven years after the fact? And why not try to deal with it privately first? Um, this is a common mode of operation or operating basis for some people. And, and I guess he's one of them. So um, I feel that it is noise, it's distraction, it's annoying. And at the end of the day, two, three, four weeks from now, no one's going to care. And that's why I don't like putting any attention on this stuff. Because it's transient, it's stupid, it's opinionated, it's he said, she said, and it doesn't do anything 
to move the ball down the road uh, toward actually eradicating Scientology or what Scientology stands for. Worse, in his um, videos um, that he just put up, Mango has linked to Alonzo's blog, Alan Stansfield's blog, and he is someone who was aligned with Marty Rathbun. Now Mango is aligned with and using Marty Rathbun's lines, uh, specifically that there's an anti-Scientology cult, which I've addressed in an entire podcast that you guys can look up on my channel. Um, he asserts that uh, Karen is the leader of this cult or is the leader of some cult that exists on social media, which is total nonsense. Uh, Karen is not a destructive cult leader, and I get to say that from a position of actual expertise, not just opinion. So, you know, believe me or not, but that is my actual professional opinion on the matter, if you want to put it that way. Um, okay, and that's, you know, that's kind of how I see this whole thing. There are some people who, you know, when I was a kid, I had a real attitude problem. I really did. And I, you know, would it would inadvertently or advertently <laughs> insult people or say things to for shock value or for effect. This is what I'm talking about when I was a you know kid, a teenager now, um, because it seemed to me that creating any effect was better than creating no effect at all and not being noticed. And if you're not capable of creating positive effects, and actually doing the work that's going to move the ball of advocacy and, and um, and, and deconstructing Scientology, deconstructing these destructive cult groups, if you can't do anything really effective about that, well, you can still create effects by communicating things. And if you want to create bad effects rather than no effects because you need attention, well, that's a way of getting through life. Um, but I don't think it's a very constructive one. And that's kind of my take on that. Um, I know that that might sound harsh to some people. I don't particularly mean it to be. I don't have any ill will now or ever towards Stephen Mango. Um, I have resentment towards the efforts of people who are trying to victimize trauma survivors even more with lies. And that's exactly what Stephen Mango is doing right now. And his connection with Alonzo and these other folks um, just kind of proves out that he's, you know, aligned himself with a group of people who feel that their mission in life is to take down other trauma survivors. That's very weird to me. But that's the mission that they're on. It's not the mission I'm on. And it's not the mission that I think any of us really want to be. I don't think we're, we're interested in getting on that train. It's a train to nowhere. It's a, it's a very short ride. It's full of noise and, and nonsense. And it doesn't go anywhere. So this whole thing is actually fairly predictable. And um, I will be attacked for putting this up and for giving you an answer to the question that you guys have asked. Okay. Um, I don't care. It doesn't affect me in the long run. It doesn't bother me in the short run because I know what's going on there. And, um, and it's, it's like I said, it's a transient thing. So I expect that that will happen. And you can expect me to roundly and loudly ignore it. Um, it's not why I'm doing what I do. 
It's not why I'm talking to you guys. It's not why I produce the content that I produce. So um, this will pretty much be, if it, I mean, unless something extremely bizarre happens, this will be the only time you'll hear me talking about this. So there you go. Cyprian Ivanov. What do you think about the reaction to the Bakersfield doctors who extrapolated the infection rate from the tested population onto the general population? Most doctors are emphatic in their condemnation of the statistical distortion, but they seem to have a vocal group of supporters who seem to regard concern over the statistical distortion as wrong or excessive. While I suspect the ability to distinguish the policy conclusion from the methodology is key to the divide, what do you think is going on? Well, we've got a situation right now around the world, and most specifically here in the United States, of a lot of desperate people. And people who are very, very concerned, very, very upset, very, very uh, unsure of what the future holds. What is it going to look like a month from now, two months, three months, six months from now? When is sports coming back? When do we get to have a normal life again? What, you know, lots and lots of question marks and very few answers. Um, this is unfortunate because we should be served so much better by our federal and state governments, and it is really sporadic which state governors and state governments are stepping up and actually getting the job done. Most of them, fortunately, are. But our federal-level response has been more than disappointing. It's been outright destructive, and that is troubling to say the least. But it also leaves everybody in a vacuum of information. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what to think or what to do. And when the leadership is continually poo-pooing the entire problem, and, and I'm talking about Trump specifically here, who won't seem to take the advice of his actual science advisors who know what they're talking about, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Bricks, for example, they have to come up with apologies for him rather than him supporting them. I mean, it's, it's so backwards right now. And there is nothing being communicated about what an actual steady reopening strategy would look like. You know, we all got briefed finally and thankfully on the whole flattening the curve strategy where, you know, this is how you deal with a with an epidemic because you got to flatten that curve. It's the X number of people are going to get sick, but you don't want to overload all the hospitals, etc. We all got that those briefings. We all understood what was going on. And that was useful information that we needed to have. But where's the follow up? We don't get that. The, the, the White House briefings are nothing but packs of lies and nonsense. Everybody can see that. It's not even a political statement. It's just the truth. So we can't look to federal leadership, and so we're left floundering around in this void of what to think. And so we end up having to go to whatever draws our attention to what we want to believe about this in the first place. That's where our heads go. We've got biases, we've got slants, opinions, ideas about things. And if we are dedicated to wanting the economy to get back in shape because we're out of work, losing money fast, aren't sure where our next meal is going to come from, then we get into a state of mind where we need to get the hell out there and we need to get back to work right now. And other people's health isn't as important as my freedom to get back to work. I get that viewpoint, right? If you if you if you walk it back to what the problem is that's being solved, yeah, it's horrible when somebody says something like that. You know, your health is less important than my rights. I mean, you know, this kind of thing gets a little bit weird. 
Um, but if you, you know, give a little bit of understanding to what's going on there, you can see that there are very real problems, logistical problems, finance problems that are trying to be solved there. And these are people who are floundering around and don't know what to do. Then you get, you know, the, well, anyway, I won't even comment on the racists and the opportunism that's going on as well. Um, Let's go back to this Bakersfield thing. Why would people be supporting this? Why would some people be pushing back against it? Well, it's because they it's it's because that's what they want to believe. Um, and in the face of a lack of, you know, good scientific briefing and understanding of what we should be doing, and that's kind of the state we're in right now as a country, um, people are going to find their own answers, and those answers will have varying degrees of efficacy and workability. And in the case of these Bakersfield doctors, well, they're not epidemiologists. They don't really understand what they're talking about. They take some numbers and they run some statistical analysis and they go, well, math works out on this, so it must be true. And there are all kinds of, you know, first principles and basic assumptions that they do not understand about how epidemics work and about the sociology of epidemics, by the way, which is key to understanding how to deal with with an epidemic. Um, they don't know that stuff. And so they put out this video and go, well, the numbers don't look so bad to us, and we have MD after our name, so you should listen to us. Grossly irresponsible. But they feel in their desperation that that's the right thing to do. Well, it's not, but that's what they think. And the number of people who are glomming on to that because that's the message they need to be hearing because they need to be solving the problems of their life to get back to work or whatever, as I've said, they'll glom onto that. And this is suddenly the authority that they will believe because they, they, ha- they want to. And that's kind of how this stuff works. You know, It takes a real effort to step back from your biases and your opinions and your situation and look at you know, what's actually going on. At the same time that I say all this, I have to say that the opposite side of the coin is also true. People who aren't desperate, who aren't motivated to deal with this, who are okay at home for now, who have the money and the resources to deal with it, or whose lives have not been, you know, severely impacted by this, they're more on the side of, hey, man, you know, the science is the science, and let's just stick with what it says. And they go on that line. And they could also be overly, um, I don't want to say trusting. That's not the concept I'm trying to communicate at all. Well, I think what I'm trying to, what I'm saying is they could be overly faithful in what the epidemiologists are saying and maybe not challenge any of it. Well, that could be wrong because there could be certain areas, for example, in less populated areas and heavily rural areas where they could be getting back to work, should be getting back to work. And if they would set up some safety guidelines in these factories and production houses for them to be able to get back to work, then we could do it rationally. That, that kind of thinking, though, is nuanced thinking. And the problem with nuanced thinking is it doesn't really work so well when you're talking to broad masses of people. It's such a problem. You know, individuals are smart. Groups of people are damn stupid, and they act in damn stupid ways. They tend to, you know, move down to the lowest common denominator of the group. And so the groups, you know, herds of people, packs of people, mobs of people, whether it's a social media mob or whether it's a real mob, there are phenomena there that you can't ignore. And they, these are, not, you know, groups of people are not smart. 
and they do very, very stupid things. And so when you talk about how everybody should just go back to work and we should just open everything up, you're opening the door to a tremendous amount of stupidity. It's just a fact. It's, uh, it's not because I want it to be that way. I'm not saying people are evil or bad. They just, in groups, they act poorly. The, the judgment is not great. So we have to factor that into the equation, right? And and the, the 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 complications pile up and pile up. So okay, so getting back to your question there, um, you know, it's really a study in confirmation bias and emotional and how and emotional bias, desperation bias, and how that can can sway people's judgments or ideas or opinions, and how they will swear that these two doctors are the ones who absolutely have the truth. Well. For that person, those two doctors have to have the, the truth because they want, you know, what they want. And for other people, those doctors are, you know, full of nonsense because um, the science doesn't really back them up. You know, is that the objective reality is that, you know, the biases make the picture cloudy and murky and and just and horrible. So that's kind of what I can say about all that. It doesn't really go to a great place, but it is kind of is what it is. Brett Olson. I know you're busy, but I would really like to hear you do a deep dive into Siddha Yoga on your YouTube channel. My grandmother now passed. Mother, aunt, uncle are and have been deeply involved for many years. There's a New Yorker article from 1994 that details some pretty terrible accusations, but since then there is not much info. Even if you don't ever get to this, you have helped me greatly in rationalizing how cult members think and why they act the way they do. I never really believed in the tenets of Siddha Yoga, but had a philosophy of as long as no one gets hurt, who cares? I recognize now, because of your YouTube channel, that this thought process ignores many victims and no longer feel this way. I would like to approach family members about this, but do not know how to without hostility and denial I'm sure you're familiar with this phenomenon. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Hey, thanks, Brett. And let me say that I get emails every single day at this point asking me to do deep dives into various groups. And I wanted to address this because, of course, it's impossible for me to do so. I've answered some emails back on this, but I thought I'd put this up on video so all of you guys would get this message that I don't not want your communication and I don't not want your referrals or, you know, links to things. I, I'm, I'm fine with receiving that stuff, but I want you guys to know that there are thousands and thousands of high-control destructive cult groups out there. And I can't do deep dives on all of them. I just can't. I don't have the time or the energy or, you know, in many cases, the interest. Because here's what I'm trying to do now, is I'm trying to go more broad. Because if I can give you guys and have been giving you and will continue to give you more generalized or... or um, well, more generalized information and advice that could apply to more than just one group or one cult, then I think that would probably be the most useful, effective use of my time and yours to try to help all of you guys. Because there are common denominators to all these groups, all these cults. There is a cult leader playbook. We talk about it. There are specific characteristics of these groups that are true for one group to the next, to the next, to the next. And the methods of getting people out of these groups, the methods that these groups use to pull people in, 
are same, same, same from one to the next in many, many ways. There are lots of different flavors. Every group has its own little idiosyncrasies, its own methods. Scientology, for example, has hordes of uh, methodologies and techniques to, to control people and twist their thinking and gaslight them and all of that. So, um, so Scientology is really up there with all those mechanisms, but it's but other groups, you know, use the same or similar mechanisms. And so, if I can get those across to you, then I think I'm doing a better job. I'm a little curious what you guys have to say about that, though. It's not to say that I'm not ever going to do a deep dive on any specific group again. Not saying that at all. I'm saying I can't do all of them. So I'm now trying to pick and choose groups or areas of activity like MLMs, for example, multi-level marketing. That's going to be a thing I'm, I'm getting back on to. Um, if I can talk about the, the, the class of the group rather than specific groups, I think I can do more good. That's the idea or the strategy, at least with the channel from this point. So, um, so that's why I am putting that out there. Now, as far as your situation with your relatives and how to talk to them, how to not blow them away, this is where all of the talking that I've done with Rachel Bernstein, um, Natalie Feinblatt, uh, sociologists I've had on in my podcasts mostly, um, but all through my channel. This is where that comes into play because there are a lot of videos I've produced with cult recovery therapists, uh, cult intervention specialists about how to do that. They are literally called how to talk to a Scientologist, how to talk to a cult member, getting family members out of cults. I mean, these are the titles of the videos. So go look them up. Make, you know, use my channel as a resource. I wish YouTube had a better indexing and table of contents kind of setup for channels that have hundreds of videos like I do. I've really done my best to try to create playlists and break it down as best I can. There's a Rachel Bernstein playlist. There's a John Atack playlist where those videos are located, for example. So I've, I've done some, some effort to try to make this stuff accessible to you guys as best I can. Um, I wish I had more time and resources to do a better job or figure out some other way to do it, but that's what's there. There's just so many resources for you on my channel, and I ask that you'll please do some, take some time to just go through them. Just look through the video tab, you know, and see what's up there. Do some searches on my channel for some keywords. I've I've indexed everything as best I can with keywords and tags and all that. So, um, so it's all there for you. And so rather than try to encapsulate all of that information, it is hours of info into a five, 10 minute Q&A answer, you know, at a certain point, you just go, man, I'm sorry, but I need you to actually just go look at the content that I put there, you know. Um, anyway, like I said, I hope this doesn't come across badly. I'm not trying to brush you off. I'm not trying to push off your answer or anything like that. I'm trying to address it as best I can so that my time and your time are best utilized. So I hope that helps. Uh, <laughs> and there you go. Kevin Zay, what annoys you the most about conspiracy theorists? For me, it's when I'm told to do my own research, Google it, etc. Thanks, Kevin. Oh, man, conspiracy theories. Okay, the thing that annoys me the most about it is the circular logic of it. And the, and the fact that the bad guys in every single conspiracy theory are supervillains. 
every, you know, the one thing all conspiracy theories seem to have in common is a big bad guy or agency or group of people or agencies working together, colluding to, uh, conspiring <laughs> to somehow take down or abuse or enslave or whatever society or, you know, the rest of us. And these people, these conspirators, are always imbued with superpowers. They are the most brilliant um, planners, the, the most flawless and efficient um, logistics people, that everything goes perfectly. I mean, you look at 9-11 truthers and the actual physicality of what would have to have taken place in order for the, the two towers um, to be brought down, Building 9 to be brought down, the airplanes to be brought down. I mean, you look at, you know, the Pentagon being brought down. I mean, you look at all that stuff and you go, okay, if it was a false flag operation, how many people had to be involved? How many people have had to keep their mouths shut this entire time? How many weeks or months of planning would it have taken? You know, you just look at those three questions, and the and it just it just blows the whole thing out the water because George Bush, <laughs> Dick Cheney, these are the criminal masterminds behind all of this, or you know, Middle Eastern princes, or Germans, or the Rockefellers, or the Rocket Centers, or the Illuminati, or blah 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 blah. And it always, of course, goes at the end of the day when you really dive deep into conspiracy theory territory. It always goes back to Satan. <laughs> so you're like, really? And it really is the ultimate bad guy, the ultimate supervillain. They're always the ones responsible for these conspiracies. And they are just the most ridiculous pieces of nonsense because no human beings have ever been that efficient, that good, that amazing at their planning. And that in agreement with each other for the years that it would take for these conspiracies to take hold and actually grow the way that these theorists say they do. I mean, it's just, it's so stupid, you know? So that's what drives me the most crazy about them is the fact that they build these house of cards on, on toothpicks. And you just can go in and just go, yeah, but doink, and the whole thing falls apart and they just won't see it. Ah. Uh, that's what drives me crazy. Blake Nestel. This is in regards to the recent story from May 4th of the woman in Canada who was arrested for trying to attract customers to a restaurant wearing a stormtrooper outfit and carrying a fake blaster. Two 911 calls were received by the police of a person wearing a stormtrooper outfit and brandishing a weapon, so the police showed up and ended up tackling her to the ground. Wow, where to even begin with this one? First off, I'm aware Canada just had its worst mass shootings and that law enforcement there is in a heightened state. But come on. You're a Star Wars fan, as am I. You know how ubiquitous the imagery around that work is. So you're telling me none of these officers recognized what was going on here? She was unable to comply with their commands due to the cumbersome nature of the costume she was wearing from the imaginary universe. This is how we're combating gun violence? By forcing a woman in a costume who immediately drops her plastic gun to the ground? Actual guns drawn? What if this was an actual dangerous scenario requiring de-escalation before violence happened? I just do not understand this. I can see how this is reactionary to their recent tragedy. That might explain the initial 911 call, but it still doesn't explain the outcome. I don't get how a Western society can cultivate an attitude around firearms where a person can see another, 
dressed in a stormtrooper costume on May 4th and feel the need to call law enforcement as though it's a threat. Blake, I hear you, man. So let me, um, let me, let's go a little bit deeper on this. Um, yes, I watched the video of the stormtrooper being taken down and the cops showing up, shotguns, weapons drawn, etc. It was ridiculous. And it was obviously an overestimation of the amount of force necessary to deal with that problem. And this is where we're going to get to the real source of the problem here. And one, you know, anybody can call 911 for any reason. And if people call 911 talking about how someone's brandishing a weapon, the cops have to come out and do their due diligence. And, you know, and they're going to come out on alert because somebody is, you know, two reports of somebody brandishing a weapon is a is a confirmed report. I mean, that's not a, a small thing for police officers. The problem comes in with the police response because what we have are untrained or not thoroughly trained police officers. The amount of training that is required to become a police officer is frankly pathetic. And I don't, I'm not going to apologize for that. It's pathetic. When you look at the amount of training that we give our military personnel who we are anticipating and knowing without any question whatsoever that these people are going to end up in harm's way, we give them uh, a good amount of training to deal with that. You know, special forces, Green Berets, Rangers, these guys, right? I mean, the guys who really get are, we know they're going to get in the thick of it, and they better know what they're doing if they're going to come home. But more importantly, they better know what they're doing if they're going to get the job done. Coming home is secondary to getting the job done. That's the, that's the commitment that those people are making, and all the testing and training and work that they go through is done to weed out those who aren't serious about it. Because it's not about, like, for example, if you listen to people come who are former Navy SEALs talk about BUDS training or talk about, you know, the work they have to do, that's... The, the training isn't the thing. It's the job that counts. It's the, what you're trying to do. You know, all that training is just to get rid of the guys who aren't serious so they can get the guys who really want to do the job. We should have a similar vetting process in the police forces around our country, and we do not. Nor do we have adequate training for these folks to effectively de-escalate violent situations. We talk often this uh, about racism, racist cops, you know, the rate, the, the, the um, structural racism, systemic racism that exists all throughout the justice system in the United States. And we have good reason to talk about those things. But what we don't talk about is the training of the officers. Not enough. We talk about psychological um, evaluations of the officers, especially after shooting situations. That should definitely be something that is stepped up. And I can tell you from the inside knowledge that I have about the law enforcement and military community that they are very resistive to getting help or getting therapy or treatment. That's still a problem. There are still huge stigmas in those communities around mental health and getting real help. So that's a problem um, because... You know, de-escalation is a psychological issue, not a force issue. You know, when you're first dealing with somebody, you, you got to talk to them. You got to find out what the situation is. There's psychology involved there. There's awareness of mental health. There's awareness of, you know, a lot of things that, that should be there. And I'm not saying all police officers need to go get PhDs in psychiatry. I'm saying that right now they get nothing and, in fact, push back against anything related to psychology or psychotherapy. And they deal with that as though that's just 
that doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with our jobs. We don't care about any of that. Totally wrongheaded. Much less negotiation tactics and skills. And of course, um, armed and unarmed responses to situations like the stormtrooper, right? When you come out with guns blazing, you know, ready to go, ready to shoot this guy down or whatever, that's not the, the, the level-headed approach that we need from our law enforcement. We need people who are going in there who are ruthlessly efficient and competent at their jobs. And very, very few police officers actually meet that criteria. Um, or that standard, I guess I should say. And I'm, I'm, you know, and I know I'm unfairly bashing very competent people at their jobs. I'm not talking about those guys. The people who are actually doing their job right, good. They lucked into it somehow because not one police force in the United States is adequately trained to deal with the situations that law enforcement is expected to deal with on a daily basis. Okay, I've said that enough times. I'm positive I've made that point. I have ideas of, you know, various things they could be trained on, but I'm not a professional in this area, so I can't speak intelligently about here's the checklist of things they should all be trained on. I'm just looking at the fact that I know what competence looks like. I know what efficiency looks like. I know what people who know what their job is and how to do it the attitude, the, 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 the methodology, the, the entire spirit with which they approach their job is different. You can see that from incompetent people who don't know what they're doing. And I think that most of the tragedies that we've seen over the last many years with police officers and undue force, you know, over uh, killing people, this kind of thing, because they're not restraining them properly, they're not holding them down properly. I mean, this this kind of like jujitsu, man, let's teach cops that, you know, so they actually know how to deal with somebody without killing them in the process of putting them under control. You know, there are so many ways to to control a person's body in a non-violent, non-lethal way. But most police officers aren't trained in that at all. So you get the results that you get. You know, and this is why you get escalations and over, you know, too much violence and situations like people approaching stormtroopers with plastic guns and plastic armor as though they're a real threat, you know. And, um, it, you know, and the fact that there was a recent mass shooting in Canada and everybody's like on edge is twice the reason why the training should be, you know, two, three, four times for those police officers so that they respond appropriately and competently. And that's my view on that. There you go. Stephen Willis, you've said in the past that when you found out about the pregnancy, you came within a hair's breadth of moving to Australia to play an active part in raising your child, and that not playing an active part in your son's child is probably your biggest regret. Let's suppose that you had moved and had joined staff at the Perth Org. Do you think you would have hit a point of no return with Scientology eventually? If I recall correctly, this all happened before you joined the Sea Org. If you hadn't been subjected to the years of abuse and exploitation in the Sea Org and been on the trips that allowed you to pierce the veil of the propaganda with what you saw on the ground and the unfiltered internet access, do you think you could still be in the Scientology bubble? Do you think that no matter what, you'd have hit a tipping point where you'd exit Scientology no matter where you'd been in it? 
Or do you think if it wasn't for the things you experienced and saw that you could still be comfortably sitting in the Scientology bubble out there wherever the other path had taken you? Good question, Steve. Impossible to answer accurately. But what I will tell you is that I have um, always had an incredibly inquisitive mind. And I am always trying to solve mysteries. I hate mysteries. I hate not knowing stuff. And Scientology was something that I thought had the answers to everything. So I deep, deep, deep dived into Scientology. And my joining the Sea Org was an effort to try to take more responsibility, help people out, you know, save mankind, this kind of thing. Um, if I hadn't gone that path, if I had moved to Australia... I would have definitely had an incredibly different life because I would have had to have gotten a job out there. Of course, you know, migrating to Australia would have been a whole thing. Uh, it was expensive. This is why I couldn't make it happen at the time. It required thousands of dollars that I didn't have, as well as time and energy that I didn't have because I was so busy as a staff member. And no one, no one in my life was at all interested in me going to Australia. So that I just didn't have any support system at all for that. Um, and it is, to this day, it remains my biggest regret. I honestly believe, in, in looking back at myself, the way that I thought, the way that I acted, if I had skipped out before joining the Sea Org, I'm pretty sure I would have ended up out of, out of Scientology relatively quickly. Because the big wide world... Um, well, it's full of truth. It's full of all kinds of things that I'm interested in. And I would have been more interested in those things had I been in a situation where I had to go get a job, raise a kid, have a family at a much younger age. I was 21, 22 when Josh was born. I mean, you know, this was, um, I, I was definitely a very different person then. And I would have turned out to be a, a bit of a different person as far as my whole Scientology attitude would have been because I wouldn't have gotten sucked in more and more and more by being the staff member of the small failing org, you know, because I would have had a very different context and circumstance of my life with a kid and a wife at that time. And it would have changed my responsibilities, and it would definitely have changed my worldview. So, um, you know, on the other hand, I could have died on the plane ride there because it maybe crashed or something. I mean, who knows all the things that could have changed that would have been different. But in a general way, I feel fairly confident that I would have ended up out of Scientology faster and easier had I pursued that course than otherwise. And um, that's my think on it. Anyway, thanks for asking. Okay, guys, so that's our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on here and share my opinions. I hope that I didn't offend too many people this week. Um, I'm sure I'll hear about it in the comments, and I definitely appreciate your comments. Just please, you know, be civil, and I'll be civil back. Um, and on that note, I would ask that please, if you could consider joining me on Patreon, that would be awesome. Um, I have been getting some real love from you guys, and I'm going to try to do some shout-outs this week in the call-in show uh, to you guys who have been joining me on Patreon or have been supporting me. It has been all, it has really made the difference for me during this time um, because the YouTube ad revenue has crashed, and I don't know what that's about, um, but it has. So I'm really making it through here um, with, with your guys' help and support. And I'm trying to put up the best content I know how to earn that support. So 
Anyway, if you feel that I am earning that, help me out. And uh, that all being said, thanks for coming around and watching, guys. I really appreciate your viewership. At the end of the day, that's all that really matters. And uh, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.